The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jeannie Shanzano. Coming up on Sound On, we're going to speak with Representative Gwen Moore of Wisconsin, who spent the day in her home state with the Secretary of Labor talking infrastructure and jobs. Then later, we'll focus on the Senate Banking Committee hearing and the big questions surrounding the source of the coronavirus. Was it human or animal? And I'm Jeannie Shanzano here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. Earlier today, U.S. Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh visited Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to promote President Biden's American Jobs Plan. During his visit, he made several stops, including the Wisconsin Regional Training Partnership and a lead pipe replacement work site. He also spoke rather, with workforce development organizations, business and labor leaders, and state and local officials. Among the leaders he spoke with and met with was Representative Gwen Moore, who has served the 4th Congressional District in Wisconsin since 2005. And we're so delighted to welcome Representative Moore today. Thank you for taking the time on this busy day to talk to us. Can you tell us a little bit what you took away from Secretary Walsh's visit today? Listen, I was so delighted to see the Secretary Walsh. And what I took away from it was a real, uh, that he had a real appreciation uh, for the need to uh, fix our nation's infrastructure to broaden the definition of what infrastructure is. And I was really amazed at how uh, a cognizant he was of the need to build out support uh, for women to be in the workforce, for women to be able to, to avail themselves of the opportunity in building back better in the, in the infrastructure plan. He met with several workers today who were women with children, one woman who was even pregnant at the moment, um, and they were, these were folks that were building houses, they were in uh, uh, electrician programs, laboring programs, pipes, uh, women who had uh, participated in these pre-apprenticeship programs, they were the only women in their class, but one woman even broke down in tears uh, when she talked about uh, how hard it was, uh, you know, that for every dollar she earned, it seemed like that dollar went out the door paying for daycare. Uh, and uh, uh, another woman who talked about a woman who had done an excellent job at all the potential but found herself having to drop out at the end because she just could not cover child care costs. Um, and so when we hear people talk about the importance of, of building our infrastructure, it's something which is extremely important. We've got a, like a, a D-plus rating from the American Society of Civil Engineers, I believe it is, uh, on, on our infrastructure. Um, we have got to realize that creating equity so that women can participate in this uh, generational investment 
so that people of color uh, can participate uh, is really uh, something that we're going to have to, to make sure that, uh, that we lean into. And Representative Moore, as a professor, I have to say the D grade is not a good one, as we both know. And you're, I know, a, a an alum of Marquette, and they would have never wanted you to get out with a D. Um, let well, me... a D plus. Come on, a D, <laughs> D plus. plus. It's not that much better. Um, let me just ask you on this point you just made, which is so important about this broadening this definition of infrastructure. What are you hearing on the ground from your constituents in Wisconsin, regardless of party? Because as a, a working mother myself, it, you know, it's hard for me to believe that that is a partisan issue, this idea that we should have, you know, child care, this broadened definition of infrastructure. Are you hearing support for that, quote unquote, broadened definition on the ground, even amongst your more conservative Republican constituents? I'll have to be honest with you, Jane. You know, uh, I, I have had very decent, intelligent men say, I'm scratching my head trying to figure out why child care is part of infrastructure. And I, I, I said to them, you know, that's, that's fair, given the fact that you've never missed a day of work because of child care needs. I mean, the, the story of unemployment in America during the pandemic is a story of women, whether they were wiping down the, 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 the floors of a, of a restaurant that had closed or whether they had to stop doing uh, work on their doctoral because they had to stay at home and teach their kids uh, during this pandemic. We lost 2 million women uh, at a minimum um, uh, during this period, and then the rest of the women who did work were working uh, in great peril. But uh, it, not only do, it, 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 do we have to build the women's capacity to have child care, you can't earn $15 and then pay somebody $15 an hour. So, you know, the, the president's plan, and, 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 and Marty Walsh talked about it, is to make sure that no woman pays more than 7% of her income for child care. And again, it is a matter of equity for women working. I mean, this was a problem before, uh, before COVID-19, but COVID-19 really lifted this up in people's minds. That you, you know, you talk about equity all the time. Make sure black people get jobs. Make sure Latinx people get jobs. Women, women, women cannot work uh, if their children are not uh, uh, safe uh, at home. And I, I think, Jane, it really bugs me to hear employers whine and cry about, you know, these lazy people getting back to work um, when they don't want to raise the minimum wage. Uh, they, you know, only 4% of employers in this country, God bless them, pay subsidized child care. Um, and then say, I'm scratching my head as to why, why the government has to make an intervention in providing this utility, um, you know, and maybe it wasn't needed uh, back in the day. I, you know, I'm old enough to remember Leave it to Beaver, June Cleaver, who had her hair done and her apron on all the time. But over 50% of women are in the workforce, and they're not just working, you know, during the Christmas season to have a little extra money. I mean, often they are the main breadwinners. And even if they're not the main breadwinners, the family cannot make it without their input. And so uh, I would just hate to see us put trillions of dollars of money uh, and make a once-in-a-generation uh, investment in infrastructure at our 
lead pipes and broadband and roads and bridges and completely leave women out uh, of this opportunity, uh, not only to help rebuild this infrastructure, but to pursue their, but if they are providing childcare, that they ought to be doing it at a livable wage. Hey, Congresswoman, so I, I wanted to yeah. ask you, uh, while we still have a couple minutes left, um, there's been a lot of talk uh, publicly about the negotiations over the uh, infrastructure bill in Congress right now, and I wanted to get your sense while we still have a little bit of time where do you think that stands? Are these progressive talks? I mean, like a trillion dollars is a pretty big infrastructure plan. Is there likely to be a deal? Is it any chance that there could be a handshake deal this week before recess? And uh, what do you think the chances are that uh, that you and the Republicans can come up with a way to pay for all this? Well, Rick, I'm going to tell you, I've been in office for, uh, you know, 30 years. And honestly, God, I never thought I'd be pining from the for the Republicans of, of days gone by, um, because I am scratching my head. Uh, everybody needs infrastructure improvements everywhere. You know, the 70,000 lead pipes we have here in, in, in Milwaukee, I mean, that's all over the country. Um, you know, uh, you, you know I, I think we found that, um, I, I think we found that, you know, Republicans don't want to, pay for it. They want their roads fixed, but they don't want to raise uh, taxes on the wealthiest uh, corporations and people that were funded in the job uh, in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Um, they want everything done by user fees, which is unrealistic, I think. Um, the gas tax won't cover all these things. And I think that we have run into a no-raise tax problem, the sort of Grover Norquist pledge that they've all taken, which which now makes absolutely no sense. Since, as we mentioned earlier in this discussion, the infrastructure is crumbling. I mean, I went and saw those lead pipe replacements today. Uh, and, uh, you know, 10% of the kids in Milwaukee are lead poisoned every year. Congresswoman, what, do you, mean, what do you think of the uh, uh, idea raised by some in the Republican Party about using Leftover, uh, leftover COVID funds, I think they're talking about maybe $700 billion hasn't been actually allocated at the state level or the federal level. Could you see a compromise somewhere in between on that? Well, you know, the thing of it is that they're, they're double counting. A, a lot of this money has is, 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 is already been allocated for things that hasn't been expended yet. Um, they, you know, the Trump administration already clawed back. Um, uh, about that amount of money from the CARES Act already. So I think that they're trying to have it both ways. They're trying to say that they, they, they want to cut the budget and then claw back money that has already gone through the painful process of, of, of being appropriated and, and voted uh, and, and uh, put, put into law. I think that um, the Republican Party is really demonstrating that they want to make in that their, their theory of the case is that we need to make investments in corporations uh, and not in people. And, and that trickle down has not worked. And Representative, Representative Moore, that music means we have to let you go. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. That is Representative Moore from the 4th Congressional District of Wisconsin. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jeannie Shanzano with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. And joining us is Amy Tarkanian, former Nevada State GOP chairwoman and Republican strategist. So the White House said today that they expect to receive a counteroffer from the Republican negotiators on an infrastructure plan soon. The pro- the proposal reportedly will set aside roughly $1 trillion for infrastructure repairs and projects. At the press briefing, Deputy Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre said the president is hopeful infrastructure legislation can get passed with bipartisan support. And we have sound on that. This is a process. Uh, We understand that this is a town that hasn't seen a whole lot of bipartisanship over the last few years, last four years to be exact. Uh, But this president is committed to trying to end that, which is why you have seen us continue to negotiate in good faith. So, Amy, it's great to talk to you. Love to get your reaction to this optimism. I was feeling less optimistic when I heard even somebody like a Mitt Romney was saying sort of not so fast and has his own little seems to be centrist group of Democrats and Republicans putting together another proposal. So how hopeful are you that we can get a deal here? Well, unfortunately, I would probably lean more towards your train of thought on this matter than uh, rather than the White House's optimism. Um, it's nice to be optimistic. It's nice to have um, that that tone in the White House. However, uh, the fact that we have completely different um, possible bills that are going to be brought forward, you have Kevin McCarthy, who has brought forward the congressional counter, and that's you know, $460 billion roughly. Um, and then you've got, like you mentioned, the Senate Republicans, who we still have yet to find out what the details are in their counteroffer, which is rumored to be upwards of $1 trillion, rather than the Democrats, $2.3 trillion. So that's a pretty big difference in the amount of money that all three possibilities are, are aiming for. And, of course, then it would, it would be more of, what is actually entailed? And so the Democrats, their plan, only roughly 25% goes to what's traditionally infrastructure, where you've got Kevin McCarthy's bill and the rest of the Republicans in Congress. They're looking at more of the traditional focus of the roads, bridges, water, broadband, but then they want to also include regulatory reform. So it's going to be interesting to see actually what the Senate counters back with. Amy, uh, I was wondering if I could follow up with that, because it's interesting that there seems to be more and more consensus growing around a number. Uh, right now, as you said, the trading range is about a trillion dollars. And, and, and that excludes some of those softer, quote, Democratic labeled uh, infrastructure things and really focuses a lot of the hard infrastructure that Republicans have been pitching. Uh, but it seems there's a lot of confusion around how to pay for this. Uh, the GOP mm-hmm. says no new taxes. Uh, don't want to dig into the 2017 Trump tax cuts. 
minutes uh, and uh, and has said, uh, hey, you've got $700 billion uh, sitting there uh, unallocated from previous COVID relief funds. Uh, let's put that to work. But we just spoke to Representative uh, Gwen Moore from Wisconsin, who when I asked her that question about like, how do you feel about getting some of that money out of those uh, spare funds from the, uh, the COVID relief fund bills, uh, absolutely categorically ruled it out. Those have been spent, those are allocated. Um, I, I was wondering if you have any insight, too, on, like, Nevada. They've got some of those funds, and are they running a surplus? Would they have funds to kick back into the pot if we can help fund infrastructure through that mechanism? Right. Well, and the infrastructure is very important, and I don't think many people understand um, how how much you've actually allowed it to deteriorate, um, you know, since President Eisenhower. Let's just go back to, to him. Um, I mean, he was the one who really started – this whole investing into infrastructure and making sure that we were leading the world with making sure that we were having the top roads, bridges, um, et cetera. Um, this is incredibly important. And it's, it's kind of disheartening for me to hear that, um, in, that in that interview, uh, in who was it? It was Senator who? Uh, Representative Gwen Moore from Wisconsin. Oh, yeah, that, um, they, they would be against that. Um, as a Republican, I know it, I'm supposed to be against taxes or, or be against, uh, you know, take, taking of, of funds elsewhere. But I am not because I actually find this to be incredibly important. And we've allowed this to go on for too long and not take care of this area. Um, we do have a surplus. Nevada does. My husband is a Douglas County commissioner, which is in northern Nevada, and he has shared with me that Nevada does have a surplus. Um, we are not anti-tax, um, mainly because we are predominantly, we used to be pride ourselves in being a purple state, but now we are definitely a more blue, left-leaning state, and uh, a lot of our Democratic um, partners do love to tax. <laughs> um, but... But I, I don't I don't know um, what our governor or what our U.S. senators, how they feel about using that surplus. But I'm sure that's something they've considered. And, and it's such a good point. I mean, we keep coming back again and again. I feel a little bit like, um, you know, Hamlet. Will they or won't they? How do you define infrastructure? How are they going to pay for it? Are they going to be willing to tax? Um, you know, all of these proposals coming down the pike. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th. A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Jeannie Shanzano. I'm here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Amy Tarkanian, former Nevada State GOP chairwoman and a Republican strategist. Today, the Senate Banking Committee heard from the CEOs of the nation's major financial institutions, and they talked about a wide range of issues, including the challenges they faced during the COVID pandemic and what can be done to help the economic recovery post-pandemic. Just after the hearing, Bloomberg's Joe Weisenthal and Carolyn Hyde spoke with New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez, who's a member of the Senate Banking Committee, to get his reaction. Here's sound on that. 
these large financial institutions are an important part of our financial system, of our economy, of our uh, international economic system, but they have a responsibility. Uh, the United States government came to their rescue in the Great Recession. Um, they uh, did well under the PPP program. Uh, they can be far more engaged in, for example, in the line of questioning that I was leading on creating greater access to financial products for uh, those at the lower income scale of making sure that the unbanked have banking products instead of spending $66 million in fees to cash their checks to, you know, uh, check cashing places. Um, that money could have been used far more powerfully uh, in our economy and for these families. They can ultimately uh, engage in more significant lending to small and mid-sized businesses, particularly in disadvantaged communities. Uh, they say they do that, but when you press them and you look at their PPP lending, you can see that, in fact, that wasn't the case. And so, therefore, by pressing them, by having these sorts of public events where you hold their feet to the fire to a certain extent, is that going to be enough to rectify that sort of behaviour, do you think, or, or is more needed? Are you looking for more regulatory oversight to ensure that the lending goes where you want it to? Well, I, I think it's important to, to have this public vetting. Uh, it does make them think. Uh, I have a corporate diversity survey I do every two years, and it's amazing how many CEOs call me out uh, after their uh, information comes to them, and they say, oh, I didn't know we were doing uh, this poorly. So sometimes bringing this to their attention in the midst of being at the pinnacle of their institutions, uh, they may not have a full accounting of this. But I also think it's an important job of the regulators that we oversee to make sure that the regulators are making sure that they are in the midst of meeting their responsibilities uh, under federal law. Um, and then lastly, you know, if both the regulator part and the self-engagement uh, part doesn't work, then we should look at legislatively how do we ultimately get them to be more engaged in creating a portal of access to financial products for you know, the lower uh, part of our economic spectrum, those who are unbanked, and for small and mid-sized businesses. What would that look like, in your view, either from a greater regulatory engagement or if you say it has to come from uh, a new law uh, to do that, what would that look like specifically? Because it sounds great, more inclusion and so forth, but what do, do you have an idea, sort of concrete in your mind of, okay, this is what it would look like for the banks to be, ta uh, be taking this seriously? Well, if you look at the Community Reinvestment Act as a standard, uh, it gives a, a clear uh, desire. One of the things we're concerned about our regulators uh, is that the OCC issued a Community Reinvestment Act standard that I just thought was uh, horrible, and we're glad to see the acting OCC director is uh, revisiting it, uh, and that the Feds, uh, Federal Reserve, and others are, are, are looking at their a standard. But that's an example of how you can constructively get the financial system to engage uh, in these communities uh, in a way that will inure to the benefit and ultimately to the overall economy. And so, uh, you know, I don't have a specific legislative idea in mind, but I do have a framework that, in fact, has already been used through community reinvestment, right. uh, others which could be, I think, uh, incredibly powerful. That was New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez speaking with Bloomberg earlier today. Um, Rick, this was a much type hearing. What did you take away from what the CEOs had to say today? 
You know, I think they were able to tell a story about how they survived well uh, the pandemic. Their systems were in place. Uh, there were no failures, uh, and they profited uh, uh, extremely well uh, during the downturn. So there was stability there. And I think that that probably generated a little anxiety amongst the members of Congress who, you know, wanted to see them really take more active role in banking the unbanked, as Senator Menendez just said in his interview earlier today. And I think that uh, by and large, I was shocked by the fact that there really weren't many prescriptions for future action. And Amy, let me just go to you and ask in the brief time we have uh, remaining, what was your big takeaway from the hearing today? I mean, it went on for many hours, but but what did you learn from the hearing today? Well, uh, he, he's right in, in a lot of his points, Senator Menendez is. However, I don't want my bank to be engaged in social uh, projects. I don't want them to be engaged in environmental projects. I want them to be fair with the way that they lend money. Uh, they did extremely well when we had the recession in 2007-2009. It feels like we have that all over again. And they seem to favor the very wealthy, and they hardly give any breaks for the small business owners. Um, and and the, the interest rates that they that they lend out usually are like 0. 0.0 to 0. 0.5 percentage points but now you've got it anywhere my husband was just able to get one finally and it's all the way up to 5.25 that's insane there's no way small businesses can can survive if they don't have this assistance and banks are very unfair this is bloomberg sound on on bloomberg radio I'm Jeannie Shanzano, along with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Amy Tarkanian, former Nevada State GOP chairwoman and Republican strategist. Listening to the hearing today, many of us were struck by how very different the lines of questioning and inquiry were when you listen to the Democratic side versus the Republicans. This was illustrated by committee chairman Sherrod Brown, Democrat of Ohio, who in his opening statement stressed the need for banks to make decisions that benefit all Americans, not just a select wealthy few. Here's sound on that. The invisible hand doesn't lay off workers. The invisible hand didn't invent credit default swaps. The invisible hand doesn't decide to invest in private equity firms that buy up mobile home parks in Iowa and across the country and then jack up the rent. And this was in stark contrast to the opening statement of ranking member Pat Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania, who warned CEOs to stay out of the political arena when making business and banking decisions. We have sound on that. If there's a highly charged social or political issue that involves balancing competing values, such as balancing access to voting with election security, both of which are important, sometimes competing values, that ought to be left to elected lawmakers. Amy, can I ask you, how much do you think, um, and I don't know if you were struck by this difference as I was, but how much do you think that social issues should be used to make banking and investment decisions? <laughs> Zero. Um, like I mentioned prior, I, I am more concerned with the fact of banks being fair and honest in the way that they lend money and the way that they handle um, our, our future financially. I'm not interested in their thought process on any social or environmental um, uh, topics. I want to make sure the fact that um, 
what I'd actually, what I should point out is the fact that you even have, uh, the fact that we even have members of Congress trying to influence the way that banks um, should get involved or not get involved is actually incredulous um, if you take a step back because many of these many of these people sitting in Congress, they're the ones who actually help oversee and they influence in regulating these banks. So the fact that they're even pushing this towards them, I, I find that to be um, questionable. Yeah, uh, Amy, I think it's an interesting uh, uh, analysis because uh, today's hearing kind of showed that you were damned if you did and you're damned if you don't, right? You know, if you if you right. get active in these issues, uh, you know, the Republicans say you're a woke capitalist. If you don't get involved in these issues, then the Democrats say you're not doing enough as an institution in our community and that, you know, you're the difference between Main Street and Wall Street. Um, I would say, you know, just in defense of a couple of issues on the banking side, I mean, climate has been a major issue for banks to deal with, not just because of its, uh, you know, impact, but it, it is a regulatory, uh, an insurance, and a investment risk. Um, you know, uh, there are a lot of communities where real estate has become almost worthless because of the impact on the environment. Uh, that's uh, that's been happening over the last 20 years. So I think banks have to take those kinds of things in their underwriting decisions uh, because insurance companies are demanding it. Uh, and so it's it's a it's a it's a difficult line for these guys to walk. Uh, I think today was a good example that as long as the banks are making money and they're continue to employ people, you know, and probably continue to give campaign contributions. There's probably not going to be legislation to regulate them more. Mm -mm. Uh, but if those things change and we do get into a downturn at some point and, you know, they cut back on employment and they withdraw from the political circles uh, uh, support, uh, then I think we can find that uh, maybe there's more regulatory uh, involvement by Congress. And Rick, you just mentioned the issue of the environment. Another issue of the many that came up was brought up by Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, who really slammed J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Diamond fairly hard when she argued that banks are kept charging onerous fees to customers struggling during the pandemic. Here's some sound on that. How much, in fact, did J.P. Morgan collect in overdraft fees from their customers in 2020? Do you know the number? I don't know the number in front of me. But well, we I actually have upon, the number in front of me. It's $1.463 billion. That's nearly $1.5 billion that you collected from your customers. Now, do you know how much J.P. Morgan's profit would have been in 2020? If you had followed the recommendation of the regulators and waived overdraft fees to help struggling consumers, in other words, without that overdraft money, would your bank have been in financial trouble? We waived the fees for customers upon request if they were un under stress because of COVID. You know, I, I appreciate that you want to duck this question. Do you know how much your profits would have been if you'd actually waived all the fees as the, rec we, as we, the regulators we waived, recommended? We waived the fees every time. The answer is your profits would have been $27.6 billion. I did the math for you. So here's the thing. You and your colleagues come in today to talk about how you stepped up and took care of customers during the pandemic. And it's a bunch of baloney. In fact, it's about $4 billion worth of baloney, but you can fix that right now. Mr. Diamond, will you commit right now to refund $1.5 billion 
you took from consumers during the pandemic? No. Right now? No. No. That's right. Over the past year, you could have passed on the breaks that you got from the Fed to your customers, but you didn't do it. Everybody else here, those other three bankers, will any of you agree to refund the overdraft fees that you collected? I didn't think so. So no matter how you try to spin it, this past year has shown that corporate profits are more important to your bank than offering just a little help to struggling families, even when we are in the middle of a worldwide crisis. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Amy, does does uh, Senator Warren have a point? Um, she did press uh, the, the CEO of J.P. Morgan fairly hard, as we just heard. Does she have a point in terms of the amount of fees that they were collecting during the pandemic? She absolutely does. And that was the first time I've heard that sound. And, and you probably heard me chuckle because I was, she got me excited. I wanted to cheer her on and go and high fibers. Uh, the fact that she actually pointed out all of this. This is brutally honest, and it is so sad. Um, the fact that we know that the banks have actually lent less money since 2013, when the country needed it the most, they were lending the least. And it's criminal, the fact that they were sitting there and making such huge amounts on people who were desperate. I agree with her. That really does say something. Rick Davis, do you agree with Amy on that? Um, she's obviously a Republican, a, a you know, GOP strategist, and she wants to high five Senator Warren. <laughs> That's big news. There are yeah. some things <laughs> I will simply not do. So <laughs> in immortal words of Jamie Dimon, no. <laughs> I love it. I I wanted to get both of your reaction to another big story today. President Biden and the White House announced today that they're calling on the U.S. intelligence community to do more to look into how COVID-19 spread around the world. The WHO announced earlier that it was unlikely that the virus originated in a lab in China, but the U.S. has been critical of China, saying officials aren't sharing enough data or information to conduct a thorough investigation. And today at the White House briefing, the deputy press secretary said that the new request from the president asks the intelligence officials to investigate further and report back in 90 days. She also told reporters that the president has been vocal about getting China to cooperate for months. We have sound on that. We have been saying that for a very long time, that China needed to provide more access to the lab, uh, cooperate more fully with the scientific investigators, and uh, we don't think that they have met that standard. So, Rick, do, do you think the president was right? I was surprised that he did this, but do you think he is right to press for this investigation? Well, I think... Uh it's pretty clear that, that there's something there. I don't think the president would have stuck his neck out at a time when, you know, you've got so much going on around the COVID good news uh, side that uh, that he'd start to go and relitigate something that, frankly, Donald Trump was doing uh, throughout COVID, uh, laying it on the doorstep of the Chinese, laying it on the doorstep of this Wuhan lab. Uh, and he was roundly criticized by Democrats every time he did it. Uh, so it, it's it's it, it's not an easy decision by Joe Biden to weigh in on this. And I can only assume that the reason he's doing it is because there's some there there. And Amy, in the 30 or so seconds we have left, what is your view on the on the president uh, announcing this and asking for feedback or a report within 90 days? Right. I, I think that's a very lengthy period of time to wait when uh, I think the majority of, of the same thinking people out there um, 
are leaning towards that this came from the lab. Um, I don't think anybody uh, believes that it came from a bat randomly. Um, and the fact that Dr. Fauci has been grilled and taken to task uh, by Senator Rand Paul, and we find out that the NIH earmarked $600,000 to go towards this uh, gain-of-function research, and the fact that Senator Paul also um, passed an amendment in the Senate to ban all further funding of gain-of-function research in China, I think that right right there tells you and tells the administration, you need to keep looking, and I'm glad they are. And we ended on a bipartisan agreement here. I want to thank Representative Gwen Moore, Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis, and of course, Amy Turkanian, former Nevada State GOP chairwoman. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.